You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Life Community Church. Uh, We are a church for the city. I'm making much about the name of Christ. That's not just an identity that we take on as a church. That's an identity that we strive to live out as individuals in this church because we are the church. And so we have values that we try to live to and strive to, practicing love with everyone always, giving more than what makes sense, chasing after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our life, anchoring ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's word. Those are things that we strive for. A few things that uh, we want to bring to your attention is, is we are having a Good Friday service with the community this year. Uh, we d- have done that as a rhythm over the last few years. We stopped doing that last year with uh, the pandemic, but we'll be in person this year. It is a great time. We join together with a lot of other churches in our community. It's at Hope Missionary Church at 7 p.m. on Good Friday. You guys know that date. All right. Secondly, uh, our spring feast is happening. And so we are going to, oh, we'll go to Kahoot. I'm sorry. We're having a hoot on Kahoot uh, this coming Thursday at 6.30 p.m. If you're interested in joining just an online time of hanging out, answering some questions and talking, you can text quiz to 824-2252 and we'll get you the links. Spring feast is coming up next week. We will be serving food in our gymnasium. We'll have a time together uh, after uh, listening and, and understanding what it means, uh, uh, what Palm Sunday means, what the triumphal entry means. We'll join together and we'll serve you at your tables. You won't have to stand in line, so we'll give you instructions next week. But if you're in here and you could help us by volunteering, we certainly would appreciate that. And you can sign up at the table in the back of the information desk. And then lastly, just to remind you that Easter, we're having two services at 9 and 10.30. You're welcome to come to either. Right? And, and we're, we're, that's going to be on Easter Day, and we'll have both of those services live as well. Well, let's head into Matthew today. I'm a little bit nervous today. Uh, Asa is in the crowd today, and I'm a little nervous that he's going to fall asleep when I talk. Um, so, oh, he's already asleep. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I did lose a contact on the way up here today, and so I'm facing a little bit of adversity um, but then it, it, as I was coming up, Michael Jordan came into my head, and I remember that he scored 63 points when he had the flu, so maybe this is my flu game or something like that. If you, you don't know sports, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's okay. We are in Matthew 5. We've been in the Beatitudes. Now we're heading to these word pictures that Jesus gives us at these end, the end of the Beatitudes about being salt and light. And so we'll pick this up in verse 13 in chapter 5 all the way down to verse 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, humbly, meekly approach your word. We believe that it's sufficient for our life. 
that it is good and right in your design. And so, Lord, will you bring conviction to our hearts? Will you bring joy and increase our love for you through your word today? Use my words as a vehicle, Lord. Spirit, I pray that you would bring guidance in our life. And we pray this boldly through the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Today we are talking about these word pictures, this idea of being salt and light. If you're a kid in here and you didn't go into children's ministry, there are five words that I want you to listen for. You listen for the word preserve, flavor, illuminate, darkness, and decay. You can talk to your parents about those as you leave today. Jesus, in this chapter in Matthew 5, has spoken in link about the inward character of a believer. Uh, the Beatitudes sort of speak to the heart. They deal with the inner core of those who love God, what motivates us. And now here in Matthew 5, Jesus turns and he begins to speak about the desire to take that sort of posture, those characters into the world. It is not the aim of Jesus for Christians to develop our character in isolation. He wants us to take that out and display Christ into the world by being involved with the day-to-day activities of our life, the happenings of other people in our relationships. God wants his light to be seen. He wants his salt to be tasted, and it will be through us. And certainly this is one of the most well-known illustrations of Jesus. Uh, They, uh, believers, uh, are are who Jesus is talking to, and, and he's saying that by faith you are salt and light to the world. Jesus brings us the image of a believer who is a cultural, communal, societal difference maker, influencer, caretaker, not something that one earns. You don't believe, and then later, after you figure this out for a while, you become salt and light. No, you, by faith, definitionally, you become salt and light. By faith, we are salt and light. If you believe in Jesus, the image of salt and light is about you. Regardless of how much faith you have, regardless of how clean you deem yourself to be. Now, salt and light today might elicit some, a very different understanding than it would have been back when Jesus first uttered these words. Uh, certainly, we think of, we like salt today, and when we think of salt today, we often imagine our pantries and so I'm looking in my pantry, and I've got, I've got pink salt, I've got blue salt, I've got white salt, I've got coarse salt, flaky salt, I've got fine salt, I've got garlic that has salt in it. Like we just, we have a lot of salt. And so not having enough salt is not a, an issue of mine. Rather, in particular, I'm concerned with having too much salt, right? Too much salt is bad for us because... We know salt to be sodium, and one has to be careful with how much salt that we have in our diets. Now, light is equally as important to us because it has this sort of uh, preserving effect, this, this uh, illuminating effect, and, and, but we don't have to do much to acquire light. We just pay somebody, and then we flip on a switch, we turn a knob, or if you're in my house, you just say, hey, Google, yeah, maybe you, hey, Google, turn on the lights. I, I'm that trendy. Light is, is such a, a simple commodity. We, we have it in abundance. And so it's so abundant that we spend far less time worrying about whether I have it or not, but what kind of light that I have. You know, do I want lamps in here? Or do I want overhead light? Do I want, uh, what's the mood? Do I want cool light? I want warm light? How many Kelvins do I want in this? Do I want 5,000 Kelvin? Do I want 1,000 Kelvins? 
Today, salt and light are objects of consumption determined by preference. They are not essential for survival. Yet to the early church, and to the first century Jewish person, salt and light were very much indispensable elements of survival. Salt is one of the earliest of all preservatives. It's a valued commodity in the ancient world. Without refrigeration, salt became the means of preserving meat and produce from decaying. The ancients would rub down their meats and their fish to preserve it for regular use. They would pickle their vegetables after an abundant harvest to save it for later. Seafarers just a century ago would salt down their fish and meats to preserve them for long journeys ahead. Salt was such an important corruption preservative in that day, in that ancient world, that there were wars that were fought over salt. Entire economies were based around salt. In short, salt literally made the difference between life and death. Now, certainly before our ability to flip on a light switch, light was a consistent source of consideration and effort to maintain. Light wasn't just about illumination, it was about heat, because light radiates heat. Now, imagine going camping this, today or, or this week. What would be the first few things in your mind? You would think about your shelter, and then you would think about, do I have enough wood? Do I have enough light? Well, you, would, you would do what you could in effort to make sure that you had enough wood to burn so you could be warm and so that you could see all those creepy noises out there and know exactly what they were. Light allows us to see the unseen, it allows the cold to become warm, and that's comforting and necessary. And so it's important that we ground these two commodities, salt and light, into their original context at the time of Jesus so that we understand that these are essential things. These are necessary things. Because to the original hearers of Jesus, they would have not understood him to say, hey, you guys are important, and you should consider this in your life. That's not what they would have hear, heard. They would have heard, you, believer, are essential for flourishing in my design. Believer, you are essential as salt and light for the flourishing of God's people in his design. We are essential to the flourishing of the world. A key thought in both of these pictures is the idea of distinction. Salt is needed Salt is needed in the world because it is rotting and decaying. And if our Christianity is also rotting and decaying, it won't be any good. Light is needed because the world is in darkness. And if our Christianity imitates the darkness, we have nothing to show the world. There has to be a distinction to us. And so we would ask the question, how do I go about living out this identity as salt and light today. How do I do this? Well, there are three functions that we want to identify as being salt and light. As salt and light, we are to preserve. As salt and light, we are to flavor. And as salt and light, we are to illuminate. And we'll take some time today to walk through those. First, we are to preserve. Being salt and light is about preserving the communities in which we live in, the world around us, preserving our neighbors around us. And I think that's an important sort of understanding because we are often, far too often, taken away with all the things that are going around us in the world, on social media, 
what's happening over in this country, in that country, how people are being treated over here, what's going on over here. But we are to be salt and light in the place, in the time that God has planted to us. So how do we do that? Well, there's a story that I think illustrates this really well. Uh, there was a, a small mountain resort that hired a man to live on top of a mountain. Not on top, that would be awkward. He lived at the top of a mountain, and his job was, was to maintenance the spring that started at the top of the mountain that brought life to the valley and to the city. And that man was hired, and very few people ever saw him again. He was sort of a quiet person who lived on the mountain, never really came down. He lived by himself in a little shack, but he was faithful to remove the debris and the muck from the spring at the top of the mountain to keep it clean and flowing to the valley. And the city boomed. Visitors came from afar because it was this beautiful, quaint little valley. And decades went by. And eventually, the local government got together one meeting, and they pondered, who is this guy? We have been faithfully playing this guy for decades now, but nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew where he lived. Nobody had oversight on him. But the city faithfully paid him year after year, decade after decade. And so that council made a decision that night to remove that man from the payroll as a cost-cutting measure. And they thought it was good, a good stewardship decision. And so they sent somebody up to find him and inform him. Well, weeks went by, then months went by. Slowly over time, that spring began to flow with a little less force. The water changed color from being clear to being orangey-red from the mountain runoffs. And eventually, this vibrant spring became a trickle of brown water. And visitors stopped coming, and their economy crashed. Realizing their error, the council quickly met to reinstate this old man to his post. And not instantly, but week after week, month after month, the water cleared, and the sp spring began to rush again, and the visitors came back, all because of the hidden, unknown efforts of an old mountain man. And I think... This is what we should think about when we think about what it means to preserve culture, what it means to be a preservative. This is what we have to keep in mind. Preservation isn't about flashy, spectacular things. It's about God's people being good and faithful in the mundanes of life, the unseens in life, focusing on being good and faithful in my relationships. Focusing on being good and faithful at my work. Focusing on being good and faithful as a parent, as a husband, as a wife. That is the consistent work of what it means to be salt and preserve the world. Keeping decay away simply by being good and faithful to the God that saved me. Not seeking fanfare, but faithfully living up to his call. You know, John Stott, who's a pastor theologian who's passed away in the last decade speaks about salt and he, he says this he says God intends us to penetrate the world Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in the elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars or our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is to be rubbed into meat to stop it going bad and when society does go bad, 
we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But we should not, but should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? As salt, we are not looking at the world with fervor and anguish and saying, you just need to be salt. You need to get your stuff together. But with patience and conviction, we walk the long path of obedience in the same direction, quietly contending to ourselves to be like Christ, knowing that that is what it means to be salt. And that will be what preserves and keeps decay away. The second foundational function of salt and light is to add flavor, to add flavor. The idea here is that when we act, interact with, with people as God's people, there should be a distinction about us. Paul writes in the letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know, so they, that, that you may know who you ought, how you ought to answer, man, I'm struggling with that today, how you ought to answer each person. You know, William Barclay, he writes this about this verse. He says, here's an interesting injunction. It is all too true that Christianity in the minds of many is connected with a kind of sanctimonious dullness and an outlook in which laughter is almost hearsay. Barclay is saying, Christians are people that people think have no fun. They're not vibrant or alive. And then he goes on to say that the Christian must commend his message with charm and the wit with which we're in Jesus himself. So we are to speak with flavor. And that flavor is to be one who is gracious and pleasant and wise in our interactions with people, that we sow in a wisdom into our conversations that it's attractive and different, that through our words, people would taste something different. And that flavor doesn't come from the sting of conspiracy or controversy, or hearsay, or our opinions. It's not a flavor that comes from anger or resentment. But what is the flavor of a Christian to taste like? Well, Jesus speaks to us about fruit. And in Galatians, we are reminded what that fruit tastes like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That when the world taste us, and that, I know that's awkward, that they would taste goodness and gentleness and patience and love and kindness. That is the flavor profile of a believer. And it doesn't mean that that has to be the most robust thing ever. It just means that there should be in our life, when people interact, interact with us, they should be go, hmm, I get a hint of goodness. There's a hint of patience there. That's what it means to be flavor. And then we are to illuminate. And Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 through 11. He says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Paul says that not that you 
once walked in darkness, but he says that you once were darkness. That once we had a darkening effect on creation, but now you are light. Not myself, I'm not light. You are light in Christ. But now you are light in Christ. So live out that identity by doing what is good and right and true. Pursue faithfulness with the Lord. And don't become part of darkness again. Instead, expose it. Expose that darkness. And I think the key element to illumination here is the subject of what needs to be exposed. A lot of the times we read this idea about using our light to expose things, and we think of a security guard carrying a flashlight around in an office building at night, looking around and going, ah, got you! You're not supposed to be here. But the subject to exposure is not people. It's the works of darkness. It's the works of darkness. So many times we want to search out other people's lives and find ways that we can discredit and invalidate them and expose them so people will condemn them and honestly build up our ego so we can feel better about ourselves. But that's not the work of illumination that the Lord asks of us. He's called us to expose what the works of darkness, not specifically the person first. Now, there will be times where we say, hey, we can no longer be in fellowship with this person. I can no longer walk with this person. But how do we arrive there? It's first through the loving kindness that God gives to us to come to that person with grief in our hearts, to let them know that they're walking in some really bad things and they're promoting some really bad ideas, not because we want to condemn them, but because we actually love them. To illuminate is an act of love, not a declaration of condemnation. Illumination doesn't come with a sword. Illumination... Illumination comes through selflessness. And this is what God calls us to. To be preservatives, to be flavor, to illuminate the world. But who does he call to do this? Who does he call to do this? And Matthew will note the subject of these two word pictures. Who is he teaching to be salt and light? Well, the subject is you. You, you be salt and light. Like this is very personal. Like Jesus is in front of his disciples and he's saying, you. This isn't a condition or a command for somebody else. This is about you. This is about believers. This is about you and I. It's personal. It's to each one of us. Think about the implications of that. You have a great purpose in God's plan and you have it all the time every place that you go. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, highly educated, tall or short, male or female, well-spoken or with a stutter. We are salt and light. You be salt and light. So many times we struggle thinking, what is God's will for my life? What has God asked me to do? What is his purpose for me? But the Lord clearly lays out what his will is, what I'm supposed to do in some very easy to understand terms. You, you be salt and light. Be true to that, and everything else will fall into place. Simply be salt and light. And there's no, listen, there's no levels that Jesus gives on brightness. He doesn't say, you need to be a light that's at 5,000 K. 
There's no distinction in flavor here. You're either salt or you're not. You're either light or you're not. If you walked into a dark room, you would see better whether that bulb was 5,000K or 1K. If you lit a white powder on a countertop, which don't, that's not a good idea, right? But if you did in this analogy and you tasted it, whether it had an overwhelming sense or a faint scent, if it was salt, you would say, that's salt. And so here's, here's a concerning thing to me. Being salt and light has absolutely nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with how sufficient we believe Christ to be. What I look like doesn't make me salt. Whom I know and trust does. Being salt is about reflecting through us the goodness and the grace and the love and the mercy of Christ that was made known to us. Being salt isn't in my appearance, although people will see it, but they'll see it through my faithfulness. When Jesus says in the parable of a mustard seed that if you have a, a faith the size of a mustard seed, it will grow into this giant tree, this giant plant. What Jesus is saying is that if you will trust that I'm sufficient and good here, I will grow that. You be faithful here. You be good and faithful in what you have with everything that you have. I mean, that's the parable of the talent that we read in our Gospels. But today, being salt and light loses a little bit of its luster or desirability because so much of our efforts as Christians goes into looking like other Christians, comparing ourselves to other people's lights, comparing ourselves to other people's taste, specifically comparing ourselves to the gifts and abilities that are enviable, that are noticed, desire to be great, and many have left believing that they can never do that. And so I'm never going to try. How could I ever be salt and light if it means that? So many will just leave or they'll fake it. Because they figured out what that, that means, that that's what they need to be fit in and, and to be accepted. One of the greatest tragedies of the church today is that we have sold out to the idea of finding greatness of being great, of looking great. We have somehow asserted that God's desire for you is to be great. That God's desire for all of his people is to be like Moses, to be like Joseph, to be like David. He wants us to leverage the principles of their life as a strategy to be great in ours. That God wants his people to be unleashed to their destiny and empowered to accomplish all their dreams. Being salt and light often implies doing great, noticeable things with the help of the Lord. In fact, there would be even some that would go as far as saying that if you aren't doing great things for the Lord, noticeable things for the Lord, it's because you lack faith. Greatness is a crushing pursuit because it's a false pursuit. Friend, God has never called you to be great. He's called you to be holy. He's called you to be faithful. He's called you to be selfless and patient. Nowhere in Scripture is God calling you to greatness. Instead, what is consistent is that God consistently calls us to know His greatness. Because there is only one who is great. 
In the Psalms, in Psalm 145, verse 3, it says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Being salt and light isn't about the world seeing your greatness and giving glory to the Father. It is about in our humility, in our meekness, in our grace and patience in the world that others see the greatness of Christ in us, through us. But culturally, we have wholeheartedly embraced this passion of being grace, this ambitious drive to be great, to do whatever we can to be seen as number one, to, to beat my competitors, to get known. Some number of years ago, there was a book that maybe you've heard of written by Jim Collins called Good to Great. It's kind of a big deal. And Collins takes to task this idea of being good versus being great. And in that book, he says this, I'm not highlighting this, I'm I think there's a lie in this that I want to reveal. Collins says, good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools, principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government, particularly because we have good government. Few people attain great lives, in large part because it's just so easy to settle for good life. Do you sense the negativity in which Collins talks about being good? Like being good is something to settle for. Being good is the enemy of being great. And culturally, through books like this and other self-leadership books, we have stirred a depraved human soul who is longing for fulfillment into believing that what will quench your thirst is to be great, to be known as great. That is what will fix your problems. We have bought into the pursuit of greatness. And unfortunately, that drive for greatness has permeated the church today. Not all, but a good chunk, including me, if I'm honest. Something that I desire, that I still want to pick up. For more than a generation now, the default training and for pastors and leaders of the church is about how to build your church, how to grow your church, how to keep visitors coming back to your church, how to make your church great, how to be seen with excellence and greatness. And what that resulted in was the church stealing from successful businesses, the strategy that made them great and successful with the hope that those strategies will make the church great and successful too. And it worked. It works. And that strategy gets tweaked and worked today, you will find it everywhere you go. At the cost of being good and faithful, the church has pursued being great. Because great has left nothing or little to do with being faithful or good, but simply whether or not you can run the strategy effectively. So I want to tell you today, Collins is wrong. He's wrong. Maybe he has good things to say for the business or companies, but not for the church, not for the believer. Good is not the enemy of great in God's kingdom. It's not. It's not even close. Great is the enemy of good in God's kingdom because in our pursuit of greatness, we will trade all that is good and right for that which will make us great. We will trade what is good to be great. We will trade our friendships for promotion. We will trade our integrity for celebrity. We will trade our honesty for reward. Good is the enemy of great. 
And here's why I tell that to you today. Wherever you're at here, whether you're listening online, I want you to hear me say this. Being salt and light has nothing to do with greatness. It has nothing to do with you accomplishing and doing magnanimous things in your life. There are slews of people in the church today who feel unworthy and settled in or faking because we have made this idea of being a Christian as being great, doing great things that are noticed. Look, when you get to heaven, what is the most desirable thing that we could hear from the Lord? Well done, good and faithful servant. We're not going to meet Jesus and he's going to go, whoa, you're great. I didn't see that coming. What do we want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. And so might I implore us in this room that you don't have to be great to be salt and light. You don't even have to be somebody else. Just be good and faithful with what you have, with all that you have, wherever you are. That's what it means to be salt and light. We all desire to be great. We want to be great friends. We want to be great husbands. We want to be a great father. We want to be great wives. We want to be great at work. My kids don't need me to be great. They need me to be good and faithful. Your wife doesn't need you to be great. She just needs you to be good and faithful. Being salt and light is about being good and faithful with what God has given to you. And that may mean, look, you might never get attention. You might never be celebrated or noticed according to the world. But you know what? You will join the vast majority of God's saints in heaven who quietly become salt and light through being good and faithful. And so here's the question that we have to embrace today. If someone removed us from the sphere of our influences and our relationships, would there be a decaying effect? What would happen if I was removed from upstream? Would there be any difference in somebody's life would the cause of Christ be less? And I want to tell you today, don't look at someone else and think, I need to get there. God has just called you to be good and faithful with what you have, where you're at. You don't have to have somebody else's gift to be salt and light. Just be good and faithful in everything that you have, with all that you have. That's what it's needed. That's what we need to be. And so I want to end today thinking back to St. Patrick's Day, this past week. St. Patrick was this saint that was taken into slavery uh, after um, intruders came into his property. He was taken into slavery into Ireland, and served there for six years in bondage and escaped and went back to England and became a pastor and felt like the Lord had called him to go back to Ireland, back to his slavery and minister to those people. So I want to read his prayer today, and let us make this our prayer as we go forward. Let's pray together. As I go forth today, 
May the strength of God pilot me. The power of God uphold me. The wisdom of God guide me. May the eye of God look before me, the ear of God hear me, the word of God speak to me. May the hand of God protect me, the way of God lie before me, the shield of God defend me, the host of God save me. May Christ shield me today, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Father, will you make this our desire? That, Lord, that the pursuit of greatness would fade away. And, Lord, that all we would want and desire is to be good and faithful to your greatness that you would strip us from the pressure of this world to do great things, to overtake, to be number one, that, God, you will convict our hearts and help us to find the joy and satisfaction with just being yours as we are good and faithful to you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.